Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones. Like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your guest host, Dr. Nicole Didick. Like Dr. Leslie Kernison, I'm a practicing geriatrician. So that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying health care so that it works better for older people and their families. You can usually find me on my website, thewrinkle.ca, and I also have a YouTube channel called The Wrinkle, but I'm very happy to be guest hosting today to talk about an important and often not discussed topic, depression. Today we'll talk about depression in late life and what makes it different from depression in other age groups. I'll tell you how we diagnose depression and how it's treated. We'll also touch on how to prevent depression and what to do if you have someone in your life who is depressed. So let's start with a definition of depression. You might think that's obvious. I mean, depression is feeling sad and blue, right? And you might even say to yourself at times that you're depressed. Sadness can happen in response to a major life event like losing a job or a breakup or after a bereavement when we're going through grief. And sad feelings that are normal can certainly lead us to feel less interested in enjoyable activities, and they can even cause physical symptoms like losing appetite or disrupting sleep. But a clinical depression is something a little bit different, and it has a medical definition that we'll cover. A lot of people think depression is a normal part of aging, and it would be understandable if older people had a high rate of depression. But that's not true. Many older adults feel happier as they get older, and that's been shown in research. But sad feelings can be quite common. About 2% of those over 65 meet the criteria for a major depression, but it's higher in the general population, around 6%. It depends on which group of older adults we look at, though. The likelihood of depression goes up significantly when there's other illnesses. So, for example, if you look at older adults who've had a stroke or a heart attack or cancer, um, the rate of depression in those groups is about 40%. And same thing with those living with dementia or Parkinson's disease. About 30% of older adults who are in hospital meet criteria for depression as well. So it's although it's lower in the general population of older adults, certain populations tend to have a high rate of depression. And that's important to recognize because depression can affect those diseases that I mentioned in a negative way. But depression isn't always typical in older adults. So we think of a person who's depressed as being sad, um, having no hope, being tearful and withdrawn, maybe even suicidal. And older adults who are depressed can have some of those classic signs, but they may have some atypical symptoms also. For example, they might be preoccupied with some bodily complaints. So they might seem to really be obsessed with things like uh, bowel function or with pain that's unusual and hard to get a handle on, or maybe sleep or something else. 
So uh, those are what we sometimes call somatic or bodily complaints. And a lot of time can be spent trying to sort out those symptoms um, before we come to the conclusion that it is part of a depression. Older people are also more likely to have delusions. And delusions are uh, like a fixed false belief. That's part of the definition. And it's usually when it happens in the context of depression, it's usually something really negative. So an example might be that um, they're guilty of having committed a crime, or they have no money. That's called delusions of poverty, for example. Or they might feel like they're very, very ill, something like that. Delusions are more common in older adults with depression, but they can happen in younger people with depression too. And sometimes with older people, uh, depression just really shows up as a lack of motivation or um, a social withdrawal. So rather than expressing a lot of sadness and crying, for example, um, we might just see that the person seems kind of flat and not interested in things that used to be fun. Or if they're doing rehab, they might just not really be progressing with rehab and might just might not want to work with the therapist when they show up. And finally, older adults might have more anxiety rather than low mood. So it might be that the person is really irritable or really nervous, um, trouble concentrating, trouble sleeping, just uncontrollable and really extreme worrying beyond what they would normally have. And that's anxiety. Almost half of older adults with a major depression also meet criteria for an anxiety disorder. But many of the treatments for depression can help with anxiety symptoms as well. Uh, so they don't, you know, people don't necessarily need a separate treatment for the anxiety. Often the treatment for depression and, and anxiety go hand in hand. But it's important to make that diagnosis of depression. If depression isn't treated in older adults, it can have serious consequences. So not only will the person um, have their symptoms for longer, and the symptoms can be really, um, really debilitating, but it increases the risk of falls. So older adults who are depressed are more likely to fall. And of course, you can imagine the side effects of falls can include things like fractures and other injuries. Uh, depression can increase the risk for disability. It can increase the risk for dementia or cognitive impairment, although that relationship is a little bit complex and we'll probably need to do another uh, podcast all about depression and dementia. Um, even in the short term, though, depression can cause changes in brain function. People with depression can have slower speed of processing and concentration and more trouble with planning and with social interaction. And depression can worsen the effects of other health conditions like heart disease and stroke, for example, and it can increase the risk of death by suicide, which is tragic and preventable. So how is depression diagnosed? Most of the time, uh, depression is picked up in primary care. And a lot of the people that I see in my practice as a geriatrician are people that have already been diagnosed with depression by their family doctor, but maybe the treatment is getting complicated, or they're just wondering um, if there's something else going on. Depression is less likely to be diagnosed in older people, though, and there are a few reasons for that. Older adults might be more afraid of being stigmatized, and that could be a generational thing, um, or cultural even. Uh, depression symptoms can be mistaken for medical illness symptoms. So like I mentioned, um, pe people can sometimes um, spend a lot of time getting a workup for 
um, fatigue or pain. And that's not always a bad thing, but it can, um, it can kind of delay the diagnosis of depression at times. Oftentimes, when we're seeing older adults, we have a lot of medical issues to talk about, and we don't leave the time and space to talk about a person's mood. And I have to say that ageism is a part of this too. So sometimes people feel that it's normal to be sad because of their age or their transitions or medical problems. And so sometimes that ageism gets in the way of our diagnosis. Now, older age and later life is a time of many transitions, changes, and and sometimes losses for sure. So oftentimes, um, it's a time when people are looking at their life and some of the um, the aspects that were very meaningful to them that still may not be there. And sometimes that is that's a part of the management and treatment as well. But it's important in diagnosis to tease that sort of um, late life circumspection uh, apart from what could actually be a major depression. So to help us do this, uh, we have a uh, we have a document or a, a big. Uh, volume, actually, it's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And it's in its fifth edition, we've shortened it to the DSM. And the DSM has a criteria uh, list for depression. And it's the same regardless of age. Now, the criteria that I'm going to tell you about is for major depression, and there's definitely minor depression, uh, which causes fewer symptoms and may not get in the way of daily life as much as a major depression. And there's also a condition called dysthymia, which is a persistent depressive disorder, um, but it's usually sort of a low-grade depressed mood, and it can last a few years or longer. But what we're going to focus on here and what responds best to treatment Um, based on the research, is a major depression. So major depression has to include low mood, so the person has to have some sadness, um, or a significant loss of interest in pleasurable or previously enjoyable activities. So that's called anhedonia, anhedonia. And so uh, the person is just not having as much pleasure as they used to. So at least one or two of those have to be present. Um, It has to be a change from previous. Um, It has to be present for at least two weeks and cause distress or impairment in day-to-day life. And it can't be due to another medical condition. So if a person, um, for example, has an alcohol use disorder um, and is using a lot of alcohol or a lot of opioids, that can depress mood. And, um, you know, that might be the cause of the symptoms rather than a major depression. There have to be at least five of these other uh, cluster of symptoms as well, and there's eight of them. And in medicine, we use the mnemonic SIGECAPS, S-I-G-E-C-A-P-S. And that, I mean, SIGECAPS, I don't think it's a real word, but somehow it's a memorable mnemonic. So most people um, in medicine or nursing or some of the other professions learn about the SIGECAPS symptoms. So you have to have the low mood and it has to be new. Um, there for at least two weeks, get in the way of day-to-day life and not be due to a medical condition, and then have five of the fo- of, of the following eight symptoms. So s- the S is for sleep, either too much or too little. Uh, the I is for interest, so there has to be a loss of interest. G is for feeling guilty or worthless. E is a lack of energy. C is a change in concentration and thinking. A is changes in appetite. So that could be up or down. 
P is physical slowing. And that happens less often, but we can actually see people become physically slower. And sometimes they will report thinking a little bit more slowly as well. And the last S is suicidal thoughts, which we shouldn't forget. So you have to have five of those eight symptoms. Now, you might think, well, a lot of those symptoms could be caused by other medical conditions, right? So if we look at something like Parkinson's disease, for example, that does cause physical slowing, and it can affect energy and and sleep and things like that. Um, So it's important to tease some of those things out. There are some medical conditions that seem to be associated with depression also. So it's not, you know, there some of the symptoms of these other conditions can overlap and mimic depression, but some of them can, um, can be associated with depression or sort of be seen as causing depression too. So those conditions are things like cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, cancer of the pancreas, for example, seems to be one that's associated with depression, also lymphoma or leukemia. Uh, cardiovascular disease like stroke, uh, heart attack, um, thyroid function, either too little or too much, B12 deficiency, uh, blood calcium disorders, uh, Cushing's disease, which causes an increase in cortisol levels, uh, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease, pretty much any kind of dementia, or it could be related to medications or other substance use. So that's part of what uh, a doctor would want to find out is, are there any of those other conditions there? But another tool that we use is called Geriatric Depression Scale. And it's an assessment tool. It's a questionnaire that we use. And this has been validated to help us discern whether or not there's a depression. So that means it's kind of been tested in large groups of older adults. And it's been found that when we compare that to the gold standard for diagnosis of depression, um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good at picking up a depression or not. So the original geriatric depression scale was developed in 1982 at Stanford in the U.S. And um, it had 30 questions. And then it was later shortened to 15 questions. And there's even a five question version. So the one that I use in my practice is the 15 question one. And the interesting thing about this geriatric depression scale is that it asks a lot of questions about um, day-to-day life. So some of the questions are about feeling bored or feeling um, dissatisfied with life or rather staying in rather than going out and doing new things, Uh, feeling worthless or feeling like other people are better off. So it kind of gets at more than just the mood. Oftentimes, we use this assessment tool in our office to help us along with the um, the interview and the physical examination to determine if there's a depression or not. There's also a scale called the Cornell uh, scale, which can be used um, based on observations from another person. Uh, so that, um, th- so an informant would sort of tell us about uh, whether or not Um, They've noticed changes in behavior and mood. And adding that all up, it can help us to decide if there's a depression or not. So there are many, many scales and they can be used in the office or in the hospital. And they can be used in part to help us make that depression diagnosis. So if you go to see your doctor, um, they'll probably want to talk to you about how you're feeling. And they might want to talk to a family member of yours as well to get their point of view.
And they'll also want to look at your health conditions, like we mentioned, and medications. So there are some medications that can cause or worsen depression. And oftentimes people need these medications for other reasons. But sometimes we can adjust the dose a little bit. And that can, if that's what's contributing to a depression, sometimes that can help. So examples of medications that might cause or worsen depression are things like steroids, like prednisone, or beta blockers, um, benzodiazepines like Valium or Cirax or Restoril or Rivotril. Um, the anti-Parkinson's medications, unfortunately, can also contribute to depression. Uh, hormone replacement can, estrogen and progesterone. And then some other meds that you might not think about, like hydralazine and clonidine. Um, those are sometimes taken for blood pressure or other heart conditions. And of course, alcohol. Um, is a depressant also. So uh, your doctor will probably ask about alcohol. The other thing that we always ask about when we're screening for depression or, or trying to decide if uh, there is a depression diagnosis, we always do ask about suicide. And that can be difficult. And a lot of people might feel like it's offensive or intrusive, but it is something that we need to know. Suicide is more likely in people with depression, and older adults um, attempt to end their own lives less frequently than younger adults, but they're more likely to complete suicide than younger counterparts. The highest risk group for suicide, in fact, is older men, and the rate of suicide in that group is 29 per 100,000. So it is something to think about, especially if there's something like chronic pain, social isolation, um, if the person's been widowed or has had prior suicide attempts or is physically ill. That does put them at higher risk for suicide and help is available. So it is something that the doctor will probably ask about um, and don't be offended if they do. We'll ask about delusions, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and also hallucinations. Hallucinations are less likely to happen in uh, in depression, but they can. So 15 to 45% of older adults with depression could have hallucinations and delusions. And I mentioned that delusions are those false beliefs, but hallucinations are actual sensory experiences that aren't uh, reality-based. So th there might be a funny smell, or it might be seeing something or hearing something, or even feeling something. So those are important to ask about also. Now, sometimes uh, we do blood work, and that's often done to make sure that there isn't some other condition that could be affecting mood. There isn't a blood test or a scan that, um, that would nail the diagnosis of depression. So it's not like we can measure serotonin levels or something like that and determine if there's a depression or not. I wish we could. But we often do other lab tests just to rule out other things. So an example might be checking your calcium level, glucose, thyroid tests, and vitamin B12 tests. Usually we don't have to do any scan, so we don't have to do any uh, like a CT scan or other imaging, but uh, we might if, for example, if there are very unusual hallucinations or delusions and those are brand new, sometimes a scan is indicated. And I usually do some cognitive screening too. So uh, depression can affect uh, thinking and cognitive function. So it's worth doing a little bit of cognitive screening, I think, uh, when there's a depression. 
sometimes I do it too, because often if we treat depression, the cognitive function gets better. And uh, so I think it's worth getting that baseline. Now, once we've established a diagnosis of dementia, the next conversation that we have is about treatment. There's stigma around depression and also about around depression treatment. Um, a lot of people feel like they shouldn't need to be on nerve pills. And I've heard the word crutch used, um, or they're afraid that medications will turn them into a zombie. So that can take some time uh, and some education in the office. But if there is a major depression, it can, um, it can lead to worsening of medical conditions and worsening quality of life. It can lead to more use of alcohol or other drugs, and ultimately, it'll increase the cost of healthcare to society. So depression is worth treating. And medication isn't the only treatment. So there could be things like um, psychotherapy, and physical exercise, and for some people, other treatments as well. So medication is something that I often talk about, because I'm a physician. And that's, um, you know, that's the one tool that I have is my prescription pad. But other things are important too. Let's start by talking about medication. And the ones that we usually use are called antidepressants, uh, as you might imagine. Antidepressants have been around for a long time, and there are a few different generations of them and new ones coming out pretty often. There have been a lot of scientific studies of antidepressants, but, you know, we still don't have as much evidence in older adults as we'd like. There has been some systematic reviews. So those are sort of large studies that incorporate the results of a lot of other studies. And one that looked at um, 51 well-designed studies in people over age of 55, so somewhat old, not super old in, in terms of what a geriatrician thinks of as old. But nonetheless, it was 2,600 patients over the age of 55. And it did show that in general, antidepressants were better than a placebo to produce a remission from depression. And that's really what we're looking for is that the, uh, the, treat, the symptoms get better and that um, they, they remain better for as long as possible. That's what we would call a remission. So response rates to antidepressants based on this large study were around 30 to 50%. But as the age group got older, for example, over 65, the effectiveness did go down and potential for side effects went up. So it's definitely a conversation that we want to have on an individualized basis. Most of us geriatricians have a few um, uh, antidepressants that we've used in many people and that we're uh, quite familiar with, that we have a lot of experience with and, and are familiar with the potential side effects and interactions. Um, and in my uh, practice, I do use sertraline, which is an SSRI, and citalopram uh, pretty often, or escitalopram. And in fact, in an analysis of 12 of the newer antidepressants, um, although those two aren't really that new anymore, they did show that um, in the trade-off between efficacy or how well they worked and how well they were tolerated, uh, those ones seem to come out near the top of the list. So those are ones that I use often. But it really does depend on the person. Now, the things to know when starting a medication uh, are numerous. And the more, and this is what I usually discuss in my office, and 
Um, and when I do take the time to have this discussion, oftentimes the, the trial of medication goes a bit better. So some of the principles are that the medications can take some time to work. They can take three to six weeks, uh, and that's once we get to the therapeutic dose before they start working. And I say that it's three to six weeks once we get to the therapeutic dose, because often we have to start with a very low dose. And then over a period of days or even weeks, we titrate that slowly upwards. Um, a lot of times we have to try more than one antidepressant to find one that works and that doesn't have side effects. And sometimes we do need to use more than one. So there are uh, medications that we sometimes add on um, so that uh, so that the, the original antidepressant works better. So it can be a bit of a long journey to get the treatment regimen right. If we're going to stop an antidepressant, then we don't stop it suddenly. And that's not because the person's addictive and they and they get withdrawal necessarily, but it's it's more what we call a discontinuation syndrome. So if a person has been on an antidepressant for a while, um, stopping it suddenly could have unpleasant side effects or it could cause a rebound of the depression or anxiety, which could be really unpleasant. So, um, so they just need to be tapered down slowly. And that's true of most medications that act on the brain, to be honest. So medications can take a while to work, but when the medication adjustments are being made, we can use other treatment plans. So things like exercise or psychotherapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, as one example. So it just we don't just have to sit there and wait for medication to work. We can do other things while we're waiting. Once we find that antidepressant regimen that works, um, we often have to use it for six months or a year or sometimes longer to stay in remission. So it's not like taking an antibiotic that fixes things and, um, and then we can stop it. It's a commitment of six months to a year, and sometimes longer. So those are things to keep in mind when starting an antidepressant. Now, there are many different types. So examples would include selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. Um, those are things like sertraline and paroxetine and fluvoxetine, for example. Um, they've been around a long time, and they increase serotonin levels in the brain. Their side effects can include lowering sodium levels. Um, and they can have some effects on the cardiac electrical system. So uh, sometimes your doctor will want to do a cardiogram or an EKG before they start the medication and maybe um, periodically while you're taking the medication. Um, there's also SNRIs or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Um, examples there would be desvenlafaxine or duloxetine uh, or venlafaxine. Now, duloxetine is one that we use sometimes if there's pain, um, because it's been shown to help for pain, even if someone doesn't have depression. So that's something we would consider. There's some atypical antidepressants, they're called. So there, mirtazapine, for example, is acts on serotonin and noradrenaline. Bupropion acts on uh, norepinephrine and dopamine. And trazodone is a serotonin modulator that's often used for sleep at lower doses. Um, so those medications can sometimes be helpful. And then there's tricyclics. Uh, tricyclic antidepressants are, we kind of think of them now as being a little bit old fashioned, but examples there would include uh, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and dizipramine. And they act on serotonin and, uh, and uh, nor, norepinephrine. 
And um, they unfortunately have some side effects, including uh, the what we would call the anticholinergic side effects, dry mouth, constipation, urinary retention. Um, they can affect blood pressure, and they have sort of a, a, a more narrow therapeutic kind of window. So that, you know, your doctor might even want to do blood levels sometimes of that. Um, an overdose of a tricyclic can be very, very fatal. Um, it can definitely affect the heart um, and can be extremely uh, risky and high risk of, of dying from an overdose. So those are just things that uh, that need to be kept in mind if starting a tricyclic. We really don't use them that much in older adults, although there's some um, there's certainly some uh, evidence that maybe uh, they they're a little bit better tolerated than some of these other newer generation medications. So stay tuned; they might be making a bit of a comeback. Sometimes other medications are added on to these antidepressants, um, and they might come from a class called antipsychotics um, or neuroleptics. So that would be things like quetiapine or Seroquel. Um, aripiprazole or Abilify is another one. So they're not usually used on their own, but with other um, antidepressant medications to kind of augment uh, how well the antidepressants work. We use those medications pretty carefully, though. Um, they can cause muscle stiffness um, and slowing down. It's called Parkinsonism because it's a lot like Parkinson's disease. Uh, so we would watch out for that if we started one of those medications. So those are the medications, but um, as I say, they're they're kind of the mainstay of treatment, but definitely not the only form of treatment. Psychotherapy is effective for depression, even in older adults, and it's safe usually. So the one of the main barriers there is cost, uh, because not all uh, family doctors or family health teams are qualified to do psychotherapy or have the time. Um, or uh, it may not be covered by insurance plans, for example. But the forms of therapy can be numerous. So it could be counseling, it could be interpersonal therapy, problem-solving therapy, or cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. And there's also things like mindfulness training, um, which can help a lot with anxiety. Exercise is important as well. So physiologically, exercise has immediate benefits for mood. And it has long-term benefits too. And vigorous exercise increases some helpful chemicals in the brain, like brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, it, re- it suppresses the release of inflammatory cytokines, for example. Um, it can be done with others, so it can also reduce social isolation. And there's even scientific evidence that exercise helps with late-life depression. How much is enough? You know, it's we're still sort of um, figuring that out. But cardio and weight resistance training are both effective. And most of the studies had 30 to 45 minute sessions three to five times a week. So that's a pretty good general uh, guideline for how much to do and what to do. There are other treatments too, and there are ones that we don't talk about as much, but they can be important. And one of the main um, other treatments for depression is electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. And this used to be called electroshock therapy. So a lot of people um, associate ECT with some of the negative connotations uh, from the less sophisticated versions of this treatment uh, from many years ago. And that's really unfortunate because in older adults, um, the ECT can be more effective and it can be effective even after one treatment. 
and it can be safer than medications. Um, it can usually cause a little bit of changes in short-term memory, but that's usually a short-term change, um, usually less than two weeks before that comes back. So ECT, if your doctor is recommending that, then keep an open mind and learn more about it because it can be a very good treatment for older adults. Almost always ECT would have to be done with a psychiatrist rather than a primary care provider. So it's usually done in a pretty specialized setting anyway. Um, and um, if you get a referral to that setting, the providers there will be able to talk to you about all of the potential risks and benefits. And you can make a decision based on that. So late life depression is a serious condition. And you might be thinking, if you're in midlife, what can you do to prevent depression? Well, we know that older people with medical conditions, as I mentioned earlier, things like stroke, vascular dementia, and coronary artery disease, have a higher risk for depression later on in life. So it's we don't have good evidence that depression can be prevented through any specific medication or supplement, for example, or exercise. But given that depression is connected to vascular disease, my advice would be to maintain those healthy heart habits. So things like regular exercise and weight management, and also stress management, um, starting that meditation and mindfulness early so that you have strategies to cope with anxiety and stress is a good idea. And of course, seeing your doctor to get your blood pressure, cholesterol and blood sugar checked regularly is important too. So it's never too soon to start with those healthy habits. And hopefully, you'll have a lower risk for depression as you age. I want to underline again some of the key messages that depression isn't a normal part of aging. And the diagnosis involves a careful review, usually by your family doctor and sometimes a specialist as well. Depression is treatable and has a high rate of remission, although it can take a few different treatment approaches and maybe more than one trial of medication. Now, if you're worried that someone is depressed, don't be afraid to ask. It's normal to feel down, but it's not normal to be depressed just because a person's older. And it may be that someone really wants to talk about it and just needs you to open the door. If someone tells you they're feeling depressed, encourage them to see their primary care provider. Depression can often be caused by a medical illness, and some people might be more willing to see their doctor about it if they think that it's part of a quote-unquote medical problem rather than something that's all in their head. A lot of times we want to cheer up people who seem depressed and that can be hard to do. So don't take it personally if you can't seem to cheer someone up. Depression is a medical illness that takes time and professional guidance to get better. So the main thing to do is just show support. That can be a really valuable part of the person's recovery and it might be all you can do until their treatment plan starts working. Don't forget about suicide. And if you think someone does seem suicidal, just get help right away. You can even call 911 or the Institute of Aging Friendship Line, which is a 24-7 hotline. Their number will be listed in the show notes for this podcast. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about depression or its treatment or anything you've heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. 
I'll be posting some links to resources, including the Institute on Aging Friendship Line. And some of those resources will go into more detail on some of the things we talked about today. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. If you've already done that, please leave a rating and a review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show on iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Dr. Nicole Didick, and you can find me answering the comments on Better Health While Aging and also at my website, thewrinkle.ca, and my YouTube channel of the same name. I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.